special attention to this discourse. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into the being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Uh, I'm going to pray for us before we dive in. God, we thank you for this word that meets us where we are. We pray that no matter how we enter these doors today, that your spirit would speak. We pray that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, and that you would speak to us. Always in your name. Amen. Have you ever felt a deep belief about something when it is for yourself, but abandon it when applied to someone you struggle to love? Have you ever felt something deeply about yourself when it is applied to you, but so easily abandon it when it is applied to someone you struggle to love? This is a silly example, but I think about this because just last week we got a new puppy. We have an older dog, and it's been a lot of fun, but it's been uh, crazy. And one of the things that happens when you get a new puppy and you have an older dog is that they're constantly at war for your attention, right? Uh, Another thing that they're constantly at war for is their toys. And our older dog, Koo, has this deeply held belief of private property, right? She has this deeply held belief that her toys are her toys that her mom and dad gave to her, and they should not be shared. But this interesting thing happens when you start to create a separation for them to know these are Koo's toys, these are Poppy's toys, these are the names of our dogs. Uh, Because Koo abandons that belief immediately when Poppy gets a new toy. Because when it's Poppy's toy, she has no desire for private property. She takes it and she runs into the other room and hoards it, right? But what about when it is, uh, when what is at hand is less trivial than dogs fighting over toys? What about when the human heart wants grace from others, but not grace for others? What about when human hearts want God's grace for themselves, but they're angered and even resentful towards God's grace for others? See, the prophets in the Old Testament we've been moving through and talking about how they're acting as the mouthpieces of God. And they're often used to challenge the people of God and to call them back to faithfulness. 
But in the book of Jonah, if you're unfamiliar with this book, what's really unique in the, in the prophets is that Jonah actually wasn't sent to speak to God's people. He was sent to the Ninevites, an unbelieving nation. But this book was still recorded for the people of God because Jonah acts as a foil for the northern kingdom. Do you know this word foil? See, a foil is in a narrative uh, account when someone, when you read about them, you're supposed to see yourself. Does that make sense? And so the central challenge is that Jonah is acting as a foil for the northern kingdom of Israel to see themselves and to be challenged. And the central challenge that the author poses to them through the foil of Jonah is this. Will you keep proclaiming my name, the one who is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and yet abandoning my name when it is applied to your enemies? Will you keep proclaiming my name and abandoning my name when applied to your enemies? See, although Jonah had been proclaiming in chapter 3 through the streets of Nineveh to turn from their sin and repent so that they might be forgiven, that God does this thing called forgiveness. Although he is preaching this, the book of Jonah was recorded for the people of God to call the northern kingdom to repentance. As one pastor, Russ Whitfield, puts it, he says, they were guilty of false advertising. See, he says that the people of God were guilty of false advertising. See, God's people were always defined by God's grace. What it means to be a part of God's community was not that you were great, but that God was great and gracious with you. That God had kindly extended his grace towards you, not because of anything that you had done, but because he simply loves you. And God had tasked his people through the person of Abraham that he would bless them to be a blessing. That he would bless them to be a blessing. But now Israel had a chip on their shoulder in a time of prosperity, and they wanted all the blessing to themselves and none of the blessings for other nations. They wanted to proclaim God's grace toward them, but they did not want to live lives characterized by grace. Once again, as one pastor puts it, they were guilty of false advertising. The same pastor continues and says this. I'll quote him one more time. No matter where God's people show up, or where an expression of God's church might be found, we all have to ask ourselves a very difficult question. Are we guilty of false advertising? Are we being truthful or misleading when we claim to be committed to both neighbor love and grace? Are we being truthful or misleading when we claim to be committed to Christian ethics and the Christian gospel? Are we being truthful or misleading when we claim to be faithful to the scriptures and obedient to the Great Commission? God's word comes to us today in order to hold us accountable to truth in advertising. And if we would be a faithful community, then we need to consider the truth about grace and the truth about mission. The truth about grace and the truth about mission. So what's the problem in the text? Well, the problem is simple. There's at least two things. First, Jonah and the people don't really get grace, right? Jonah and the people of God aren't really getting grace. See, they get it. They know their catechism, but they don't get it. They proclaim Yahweh, but they are not living lives characterized by grace. See, Jonah is literally running from grace. In chapter 1, Jonah gets on a boat and flees to Tarshish, the farthest away he can get to, from Nineveh, because he doesn't want there to be a possibility 
that the Ninevites could get God's grace. And then God has to trap him in the belly of a fish to get him to realize that he needs to go to Nineveh. So he goes and he preaches, and then a great surprise happens at the end of chapter 3. Nineveh repents, and God relents. But an even greater surprise happens in our passage today. See, where the Ninevites respond to God with repentance, Jonah responds with resentment. See, Jonah, we see in verse 1, is angry at God's mercy. To quote for us one more time, I promise this is the last one, Jonah wanted grace for himself, but karma for Nineveh. Jonah wanted grace for himself, but karma for Nineveh. See, Jonah wasn't just some ordinary guy, right? Jonah wasn't just some ordinary dude. He was a prophet and a teacher in Israel. In 2 Kings 14.25, we learned that he was actually an important, an, an important official under King Jeroboam. And what we see is that uh, over himself and in his preaching, he knew the right things. He even, if you want to use the illustration, sung the right hymns, right? He would have gladly sung Amazing Grace today. If he was in RUF, he would have gladly sung, Oh, love that will not let me go. If he was in a non-denom church, he would have gladly sung Reckless Love, right? He knew the right hymns, but he didn't really get it. Because although those were the words of his mouth, the soundtrack in his head about God's grace toward Nineveh was actually Taylor Swift's karma. Have you heard that song? See, the song repeats over and over again, it's coming back around. It's coming back around, right? And her chorus repeats how prone we are to take comfort in the thought of karma rather than to rejoice in grace. Her song is this, karma is my boyfriend. Karma is a god. Karma is the breeze in my hair on the weekend. Karma is a relaxing thought. And she concludes at the end of her chorus, me and karma vibe like that, right? But like Swift's song, Jonah too is vibing with karma in relation to Nineveh rather than vibing with grace. See, this is so much the case that Jonah in verse 5 decides to sit at the top of a hill overlooking Nineveh, probably with his arms crossed like a child throwing a temper tantrum, and wait for the karma he desires, right? Jonah is actually, if you're familiar with the Bible, he's waiting for Sodom and Gomorrah. He's waiting for God to do something to that city. But the problem is even more complicated than we think because Jonah not only doesn't get grace, the problem is more complicated because Jonah's misunderstanding of grace is actually thwarting his understanding of mission. His misunderstanding of grace is thwarting his understanding of mission. See, he resorts to anger and resentment in the face of God's grace because he can't seem to understand how God's grace could be granted toward those people, right? You know who those people are, do you? Israel had begun to forget their identity in this time of prosperity. They had begun to, to think that their stability and their blessings as a nation were the results of their religious zeal and righteousness and works, rather than an unmerited gift of God's grace. In particular, Israel's nationalism and ethnocentrism got in the way of their mission. And what we believe about grace always influences what we believe about mission. I'll say that one more time. What we believe about grace always influences what we believe about mission. See, Israel was blessed for the missional purpose to be a blessing to the nations, 
And all of this was rooted in their understanding that God had extended his kindness and mercy toward them, not because of their glory, but because of his glory and his love. See, when Yahweh rescued them from slavery, they questioned his kindness, and they wandered in the wilderness. When Yahweh gave them the Ten Commandments and revealed his face to Moses, they built a golden calf to worship instead of him. When Yahweh promised his Uh, his people the promised land, they decided that they were too small and too weak for God to possibly make good on this promise. And yet again and again, God was and is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love with his people. And now Israel has begun to believe that their nation's temples and codes and courts and wealth, their nationalism, their boast in their nation, that that is their boast rather than God's grace. And now they've begun to believe that the glory of God could not possibly be seen and extended toward any other culture and people but their own. See, the problem is that when we lose our identity as God's people, which is always bound up foundationally in God's grace, we lose our mission. When we lose our identity as God's people, which is always bound up foundationally in grace, we lose our mission. When we believe that our boast is in ourselves or in the particular camp or culture that we belong to, then we begin to mistake how God's economy of grace actually works. Because I was, a, I was an econ major in college, so give me a break here. God's grace is not a zero-sum game. God's grace is not a zero-sum game. See, there's no scarcity of grace in God's economy. Grace for others does not take God's grace from you. God has blessed his people to be a blessing. And yet, the profound mystery of God's economy is that although discipleship is costly, our blessings are not run dry when we seek to bless our neighbors. God's grace is not a zero-sum game. And when we, like Jonah, misunderstand grace, we are prone to lose sight of our mission. We find ourselves with our own hands crossed, looking angrily at whoever those people are for you and waiting for comfort. But there's a sudden shift in the passage. Did you notice? It comes through a probing question. In verse 4, God responds to Jonah. And he asks the question, do you do well to be angry? See, Jonah is actually angry at the very character of God. Did you see this? He, He describes God's character in the very way that God describes himself. And when Yahweh's character, uh, what's ironic about that is Yahweh's character is the only source that is behind his blessing and the blessing of Israel. See, chapter 4, I wanted to read it today because it's written with great irony and comedy. Did you know that the Bible sometimes is trying to be funny? Did you know that? See, it's like peering into a Garfield comedy sketch. See, Jonah is so past it that he dramatically responds that it's better to die than to live to see these people receive grace. And although the plant that God sends to give Jonah shade is certainly an act of mercy and kindness, we're also meant to roll our eyes and chuckle at Jonah's discomfort as he sits in the heat awaiting the destruction of a town or a city of 120,000 people. And so it's worth asking ourselves the question today as we take a look at this passage. Do we do well to be angry at God's grace? Are our lives and sense of mission characterized by this grace? Are we today still trying to get the gospel for the first time? 
Or are we today struggling to live out the gospel and make sense of it in relation to our neighbors? Because Jonah had not yet seen Jesus, but all of the Bible is and was pointing to him. And we, like Jonah in the northern kingdom of Israel, cannot be a missional people or even a grace identity people unless we get the gospel. See, so the gospel is actually the answer to the problem of getting grace and getting mission. The gospel is God's answer to do we do well to be angry. Jonah knows the answer intellectually, right? He knows his catechism, but this isn't sinking in for him. In verse 2, we see that Jonah had feared this. He knew it would happen. Jonah actually uh, knows God's character. He's recited the very thing that God reveals himself for. God's love had not changed. This is not a new thing that God is doing. But it is good news that God's grace is not as fickle as we are. It is good news that God's pity for the city of Nineveh in verse 11 and his love for the world is greater than we can imagine. It is good news that God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. See, God had saved Israel from slavery in Egypt, and yet God's people would turn against Yahweh in the wilderness, complaining that they wished that they were still in slavery. Yet God's patience and mercy did not waver. And in Jesus, he offers to us, the church, freedom from the very bondage of sin. And he does this for us, as we see in Romans 5, 8, while we were still enemies. Yahweh had led the people of God through the wilderness and into the promised land, despite the grumbling of his people. He had given them bread from heaven so that they might eat and have food for the journey. But even more in Jesus, we see in Matthew 4 that Jesus would fast in the wilderness for 40 days and resist all the temptations that we have not, so much so that Hebrews 4 tells us that our grace high priest was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And Jesus, our great high priest, would not stop at manna, but actually tell us that he is the very bread of life. And we know that because of the grace of God, for those who know him, we will never hunger or thirst again. And Jesus, our living water, is actually our well of grace that never runs dry, because in his economy, as we see in John 10, he came to give a life that is abundant. See, for Israel, God had heard their grumbles for a king like the nations in, in the book of Judges, and he would actually give them a better king by making a covenant with the line of David. But David could still only be a king who needed to write Psalm 51, where he repented and asked for the forgiveness of the Lord. He too needed the abundant mercy of God, cleansing from him from his sin. But it's actually in Jesus that God is gracious to give us a better king, who would be a a greater David, because his reign is not over a territory, but over the entire world, and his reign is without end. And he would go to such lengths for you and I that he would put on a crown of thorns. This king would be mocked and nailed to a cross so that he could be your king and abide with you forever. See, Jesus would experience the abandonment of God on the cross so that his enemies, sorry, us enemies, could become his friends. And he tells us in John 15 that he calls us to love others as he loved us because greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He says, you are my friends. Do you know that God loved you and sought you and died for you while we were still enemies? 
so that we might become friends? Do you know that God has died for us people so that we could become his people? And this King Jesus would not stop at death, but would defeat death and sit at the right hand of the Father, still interceding for you so that you might know that his grace is sufficient for you and his power is made even perfect in your weakness. Friends, it's worth asking ourselves the question, do we do well to be angry at grace? See, God is just and he is merciful. Karma is not actually as relaxing as we thought when we really experience God's grace. Jesus actually references Jonah twice in the Gospels, in Matthew 12 and in Luke 11. And in both passages, he's speaking with a crowd that is looking for a sign, but neglecting to look to Jesus. They're asking for a sign, but they're neglecting to look to Jesus. And what Jesus tells them is that all that they need to be moved to repentance is the sign of Jonah. But actually, we see that Jesus is an even greater sign. See, Jesus is much greater than Jonah. He warns us about resenting grace because Jesus does not want our destruction, but longs for his word to take hold in our hearts so that we might experience and become vessels of his grace. He does not resent grace for his enemies, but brings grace and makes us his friends. He is actually a better sign than Jonah because whereas Jonah came out of the belly of a fish after three days, Jesus would defeat death itself and rise again in glory after three days. His message is greater than Jonah because whereas Jonah brought the message of God to Nineveh, Jesus is the word incarnate, so much so that John 1.18 says that from his fullness we have received grace upon every grace. His ministry is greater than Jonah because he did not travel across a sea like Jonah, but across heaven to earth by becoming man so that he might bring you grace. His ministry is greater than Jonah, right? Jesus' grace calls his people toward truth and advertising because he uses his church to point to himself. In Luke 11, Jesus references the sign of Jonah because he wants his people to not just be hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. And in Matthew 12, Jesus calls the people to look to the sign of Jonah because he has just told them that a tree will be known by its fruit. So here's the point. God's grace in Jesus is greater than we could ever hope for. He looks to us people and makes us his people. And so what would it look like to be characterized by this grace so that we might as a church become a truth and advertising people? in Madison, and the larger world. And so how do we apply this to ourselves as we wrap up? Well, first off, let me just say the first and most obvious way is that all of us, me, you, all of us, we need grace. See, in a culture that I think is often comfy with karma, Jesus offers to us something different, something that I would argue we all actually long for. Because behind the false comfort of karma, there's an undeniable truth. If it's coming back for others, it's also coming back for me. But rather than karma, Jesus, the great judge, comes to give us the gift of grace. The first thing to say about how this applies to us is, do you yet know this grace? What would it mean to accept this kind of grace? Tim Keller summed up the gospel this way. 
He says, the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, and yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. Do you know that this is on offer for you? It also means for us that we cannot have grace without truth, truth, but we also cannot have truth without grace. I'll say that one more time. We cannot have grace without truth, but we also cannot have truth without grace. Right? They're actually a part of the same coin. And yet too often the church, even in the name of truth, has neglected the gospel of grace. But the reality is that Jesus' love always calls us toward neighbor love. And so this passage calls us to examine our own hearts and ask ourselves the question, are there places in my life where I am saying gospel truth but not being characterized by it in my relationships? Are there places where I know my catechism but I'm not extending gospel grace toward others? Thirdly, uh, I think this is a helpful challenge towards us in this moment as a church. Uh, there uh, is this interesting moment in the life of a church. Uh, we're really excited about um, what's coming, uh, about Matt and Kelsey moving here, uh, about having Will on our session, about having a members in this church, right? We're a particularized church. And through the last season, the last year of uh, searching for a pastor, uh, one of the ways in which we've communicated what we're looking for in this history and life of our church is we've said that we're in Q4 of church planning, right? And kind of what we mean by that is that uh, we've been around for a while, we have some structure, we have a session, uh, but we're still kind of getting there and getting our feet off the ground, right? We wouldn't call ourselves an established church yet. That lingo doesn't matter. But the point is, we're in a particular moment in the life of our church that's really exciting. Because if I've spoken and done life with a lot of you in this room, I've heard from you that you're craving stability, which makes a lot of sense. Right? You're craving the stability of a pastor coming in, of all these things. We're in a particular moment where we're able to hope and look towards the mission of the church as we look towards stability, which is beautiful. And yet if I could present to us a gentle challenge, not because I'm worried about it, but because this passage urges us, whenever we have a new pastor and a new moment, a church naturally, in a good way, begins to ask the question, what is our mission? What are we doing? Right? And what I want to say is that this passage urges us as a church that to be a missional church, grace has to always be at the center. There are a lot of good things that stability gives us. It is good to find a building. It is good to develop children's programs and all sorts of programs. It is good to start Sunday school classes. It is good to start Bible studies. It is good to hire more staff. But if I could gently challenge us as we do these things, what would it look like for Res Pres as a missional church to do everything in and through the lens of grace? To use the foundation of grace to define our mission rather than to use our mission and say grace along the way. What would that look like for us? Fourthly, as we wrap up, we need to examine our own hearts for who we see as those people. For Jonah, it was Nineveh, but who is it for you? Is it the other political aisle? Is it the other side of Madison? Is it another ethnicity? Is it another spiritual tradition? Is it a segment of our own spiritual tradition? 
See, God is calling us to be a people who bear truth and advertising about his grace. He is a God who seeks out those people to make them and love them as his people. See, God is calling his church to be a people who are truthful in advertising and living out the great commission and God's call that Yahweh has blessed his people to be a blessing. And he does this because God's grace really is that amazing. Because God's grace really is that foundation. Because God's grace really is the blessing that we long for. And so as we close, let me say this. The world is longing for grace. If God looks upon a city in Nineveh of 120,000 persons and is greatly moved to compassion, how much more does he look upon Madison and the entire world with a greater compassion? Will we live lives characterized by this grace and loves for our neighbors? We do this not on our own, but because God has greatly loved us. Let's pray that God would help us. Jesus, uh, we thank you uh, that you are a gracious God. We thankful, thank you that you are uh, filled with steadfast love, that you are slow to anger, that you relent. We are, gracious, we are uh, thankful for who you are and your character. We pray that you, by your word, would challenge us and equip us to be a people who are truthful in our advertising. Would you meet our hearts and convince us of your grace? For all these things in your name. Amen. Would you stand with me now? Uh, and we're going to respond to God's word by uh, repeating together the confession of faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord.